0: So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order
1: reminder, we do not have our preschool today, uh, but I'm going to go ahead and pray for us as we get started. Father, we are here to receive your words, not mine. We are here to hear what you have spoken. God, I pray as we look in the life of your servant Abraham that we would be encouraged in what you can do. We'd be encouraged by his story and testimony, but more importantly, by what you and your working and your sovereignty and your grace do. God, I pray in thankfulness for all of this. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, I am so glad to be able to, uh, to bring God's Word to you this morning, to be able uh, to proclaim this here uh, from the book of Genesis. Uh, Matthew couldn't be here today. Uh, they are in Kentucky, uh, in the wild, wild uh, east up there. So uh, they, will, they will be back here this next week. So uh, I was when I was young, I was a pretty gullible child. I don't know if you can believe that or not, but I was. Uh, pretty much all it was required to get me to believe something was an adult to tell it to me, right? There's, was, it was numerous things that my, like, dad would tell me, like, as a joke that I would only discover was, was not true way later in my life. And, My grandpa really loved to take advantage of this, as, you know, grandpas do, Um, so he would trick me pretty much every time I saw him, you know, and it wasn't even the, like, it wasn't even anything special that he had, like, cooked up, it was just things in his back pocket, right? Like, he would uh, do the pull my finger thing a lot, uh, and... You hear a lot and you're like, you fell for that a lot? I did fall for that a lot, actually. That's my point. Uh, he would do it, uh, you know, and I would show up next week and think, huh, maybe, you know, something different's gonna happen this time, right? Uh, and so I, I was very gullible. And of course, you know, as I got older, I matured. Um, as most of us do, I my, my heart kind of hardened to that. Uh, I learned to be a little less trusting of just whatever anyone says. Uh, and that kind of that, that gullibleness kind of eh, slipped away. It's kind of what happens to all of us, right? We're young. We're very trusting. Uh, all of our kids here, you know, very trusting and and loving that way. But as we get older, our hearts kind of close off a little bit, right? And we, we learn that the only person that we can really ultimately trust is ourself. And while that's you know, an important part of maturing, becoming an adult, we, we lose something in that. That ability to just have implicit, absolute faith in someone. That can be a problem for us who are gathered together at worshiping a God, a gospel that proclaims as its number one call for us to be faith, to be trust. How can we have faith and trust? Well, I want to look at the story of a man this morning, basically who went through a process of undoing that growing up, right, in a sense. He goes from being this very self-reliance-hardened man to a place of absolute trust in God. That man is Abraham. What we're going to see is that God used the life of Abraham to take him from from, from being completely self-reliant to a place of absolute faith. So, so Aaron read this passage here, Genesis 22. We can really only understand, I think, Genesis 22 if it's put in the context of Abraham's whole life. Because, not because maybe we'll, we'll, we'll interpret it wrong, but because we get the emphases wrong, we get the tone wrong. What we see and what happened there in Moriah... It was the capstone of a work that God had been doing for a long time. It was a work that God had begun from his very beginning here in Abraham and calling him and taking him from a place of being self-reliant to dependent on him. In the same way, in in our lives and in our search for faith, I believe what we could find here in Abraham is what it looks like for a person to have faith in God. So as we begin this new year, what I hope is that by looking at this together, we're going to be able to see how God works in a person and grows and increases their faith in him and all of his wondrous promises that he has given to us. What we're going to do is see three things that we can see in Abraham's life. First, that God's call brings forth faith. Second, that life's circumstances strain faith. And then lastly, that uh, God's test demonstrates faith. Let's start here by looking at Abraham's life. And I, just a quick disclaimer for this. Um, we are going to be looking at two people whose name change right in the dead middle of the story that we're going to be looking at. Um, That is, it begins with Abram, turns into Abraham, and you have Sarai who turns into Sarah. Uh, When I read the Bible, I'm going to be reading it as it's written, but I'm going to be saying Abraham and Sarah the whole way through. So just so we're on the same page about that and you don't think I need to go to occupational therapy later. So uh, looking here at Genesis 12, we can see God's call that he gives to Abraham, God's call. In Genesis 12, this is a remarkably important passage in Scripture as it, as it turns from this, this uh, terrifying uh, cycle of chaos and, and, and consequences that come from Adam and, and Eve's sin. And then here in chapter 12, we begin to see that process reverse with God's call to Abraham. So Genesis 12, verse 1. In this passage, we see God's call coming to Abraham. God's call to Abraham was especially coming to him as an individual. So at this time, he was living in a land called Haran. Nothing wrong with that land, but it wasn't the land of God's promise. It wasn't where God was sending Abraham. He was, at this time, married to Sarah, uh, who we see uh, throughout Abraham's life was not just a side character, but was crucial to what God was going to do. And we think he was 75 years old when God called him. So, this call comes to Abraham, and God interrupts him and in all of his, whatever he was doing at the time, Right? Uh, At this time, we have no reason to believe that Abraham knew God, that he was a worshiper of God, or that uh, he knew much about him. But God comes to him anyway, and he issues a call to him. And this call basically was made up of a promise and a command. God's call to Abraham basically had a promise and a command with it. So God made a promise to Abraham, which was centrally, to make him into a great nation as his means of blessing the world. The promise to Abraham was to make him into a great nation as a means of blessing the world, right? He says that I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is a grand promise that God is giving to Abraham. Incredible. He's promising to take him here in in this later part of his life, being 75 years old, and promise him a legacy that would continue after him, that a nation would come from him, and not merely a legacy, but he would use this nation as a means to bless all the families of the earth. That this was the beginning of God's undoing of what had went wrong in sin. That God was making an incredible promise here to Abraham. Now, God gives this promise that he's going to make Abraham into a great nation. Two things you've got to have to become a great nation. One, you've got to have children, or at least an heir, and you've got to have somewhere to put them, Right? So at this point, Abraham didn't really have either. He didn't have enough land for a, for a nation to, to be in, and he didn't have the children that would eventually become the land. So this promise of God's, it has embedded into it a promise for land and children as well. God also gives a command to Abraham. He tells him to leave his home and go to a land that God has not yet defined. To leave his home and go to a land that God has not yet defined. Uh, Essentially, a command to relocate. This would have been a significant command for God to give to Abraham. He was asking him to leave all that he knew. He was asking him to leave his home behind, where he had situated his life. And remember, Abraham was 75 years old it's one thing to ask a 19-year-old to move. You know, you go to a 19-year-old, and you're like, hey, there's this job in the Bahamas, and they're like, I'll be there next week, right? It's a different thing when you're talking about a 75-year-old who has a well-established life and family, servants, and, and, and all kinds of other belongings there. But God tells him to get up and go relocate. What we see in God's call and this promise and this command is that they both required a tremendous amount of faith. They required a tremendous amount of faith. God's promise required faith in that Abraham had to first believe that God would be faithful to his promise. Again, Abraham at this point didn't know God, didn't know much about him, and had no reason to believe that God would actually do what he said he was going to do. This was new to him. He didn't know him, didn't know God. And he had to believe that God wouldn't just be faithful during his own life, but that he would continue this faithfulness to his children and their children and their children on to many generations. And Abraham had to believe that God could do some incredible things. At Abraham's age, this wouldn't have been an easy journey that God was calling Abraham to go on. He uh, would have uh, strained him, uh, it would have been difficult at times, and he had to have faith that God would preserve him and get him there. Even bigger, though, is the question of an heir. Abraham doesn't have any kids. He doesn't really even have someone to pass his stuff on to. How on earth was God going to fulfill a promise like this? It required great faith from Abraham. But it wasn't just God's promise that required faith, but it was his command, too, the thing that he called Abraham to do. God called Abraham to leave everything behind. Obviously, to imagine for any of us to go and leave everything we know, everything we have, every person we're around, and go to a different place. It requires a bit of a leap of faith, right? That there's something better at the other end of that. And I think it's important to note, when God calls Abraham to go, right now, the place he's sending him to is pretty vague and undefined. He says, go to the land that I will show you. It's like, okay, what land is that? It's like, don't worry about it, I'll show you. And Abraham has to uh, leave his home, not having a place typed into his GPS yet. He's leaving and going somewhere that God is going to direct him to, but to where? Still to be found out. So to even obey God's command required a tremendous amount of faith. When you look at God's call, this promise, this incredible, uh, hard-to-believe promise— that God gives to Abraham, and this very difficult to follow command, ultimately, God is inducing Abraham not to have faith in some promise or in some outcome to all of this. He's inducing him to have faith in himself. God is calling Abraham to have faith in him. God did not tell him where he was going. God did not tell him how he was going to do it. All God gives him is a promise, a grand one, a grand promise, but vaguely defined, and a command to leave where he was at. Abraham would have nothing to trust but God. God was pushing him out to show to, to put him on the path of depending exclusively on Him, not on his own efforts, not in his own ability, uh, not in in whatever had made him rich, as, as we'll see that he was but to depend only on God. The same way God's call for us in Christ requires a tremendous amount of faith. The promises that God gives in Christ are incredible. Promises us forgiveness from all of our wrongdoings. Promises us eternal life. He promises to, for, that we can know him and, and relate to him even though our sins have separated us from him. God's promise in Christ requires great faith. To even utter these things which causes my lips to tremble. The things that God has given in Christ, has promised in Christ, are more than anything that this life can offer they're more than anything we can obtain or have on our own. And God's commands require great faith, likewise. Christian life was never supposed to be easy. It was never supposed to be simple. Christ makes that clear. He calls for us to take up our cross and follow him. And taking up something as difficult as following Christ, it requires a tremendous amount of faith that God is true and that his promises are right. To believe and obey God requires a tremendous amount of faith. And just like Abraham, our faith, our trust in him cannot be had by believing in the promises themselves, but only by trusting in God that he is trustworthy, that he is true, that he is sufficient, and in himself will give what he has promised. And trusting his very character, we trust and obey our Lord. So God induces Abraham to trust in him as he sends him out with this call to have faith. And he calls for us to do the same in Christ. So what happened after this? Did Abraham have trust? Well, yes, he started in faith, right? Verse 4 says, So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So initially, Abraham listens, right? Thumbs up so far, Abraham, right? God calls for him to go. He gives him this promise. He gives him this command. Abraham says, You got it, I'm out. And so he heads out in obedience and in faith to God. But what we see is throughout Abraham's life, his faith was strained by a series of crises that would gradually grow his dependence on God. He starts out well, but then things start to happen. Unexpected events, things that make this promise that God had given look a little more shaky make Abraham wonder, uh, can that really be true? Can that be right? What ends up happening is we see a cycle that repeats itself again and again and again through Abraham's life, where this crisis appears, uh, where where it looks like God's promises are, are in danger. It threatens to undo God's promises. And then Abraham responds. Abraham acts himself to preserve God's promises. Remember, he's been doing this for 75 years. He has a well-established life. He has uh, has made a name for himself, gathered everything he needs. And so he, seeing this crisis appear, says, I got it. I'm going to fix it. And tries to protect God's promises himself. And then again and again and again, God intervenes in a way that reiterates his determination, God's determination, to see his promises through and shows Abraham that he can't just trust himself, but he must depend on the God who has called him, who has given him these rich promises, who has given him this command. It's not about God calling Abraham and then Abraham making it happen, but it's God calling him and God making it happen. So let's look through these crises of of Abraham's life. Uh, It's there in your notes, the the references. We're not going to read all of that. That would take a tremendous amount of time. Uh, But what I want to do is to kind of just get an overview of these events, these crises that came up in Abraham's life and how he responded to them. So the first crisis that we see, it... Happens here in uh, chapter twelve. Right? we haven't even got out of chapter twelve before the first one comes. Basically, uh, there is a famine, and Abraham and all of his, you know, all the people he was responsible for, his servants, his wives, family, they uh, flee to Egypt. To have enough food to eat, right? The the crops aren't growing, their uh, livestock can't eat, and they're not getting by. They can't make ends meet, so they go and they live in the land of Egypt for a period of time. When they enter the land of Egypt, Abraham is fearful for his life for an interesting reason. Sarah, his wife, is beautiful, and Abraham thinks, if I go down there with a beautiful wife, they're going to want to kill me to take her as their own wife. And so uh, Abraham comes up with a brilliant solution. When they go down there, when they go to Egypt, he begins to tell people, this this woman, she is my sister, actually. She is not my wife at all. Uh, and so the implication is, well, I'm not going to kill a man to marry his sister, right? That's no big deal. And so uh, that's the plan. And so they go down here, uh, and Abraham's thinking to himself, well, God's made this promise to me to make a great nation. I know one thing, no Abraham equals no great nation. So got to make sure I make it out of this. And he begins to tell people that Sarah is his sister. Apparently his fears about the Egyptians, about what they would do, it must have been well-founded because uh, the biggest Egyptian of them all, Pharaoh, uh, decides to take Sarah as his wife. And of course, you know, Abraham has put himself in the situation. He's like, well, I mean, she is my, my sister, you know, and you've got you got a lot of people with swords that, uh, that listen to you. So, you know, who am I to keep you, Mr. Pharaoh, from marrying my sister? And so Pharaoh goes to take uh, Sarah as his wife. And I think this should, like, go without saying, but, like, husbands, don't do this. Uh, and I'll leave that there. And so God uh, intervenes, and seeing uh, this, this situation start to play out, he intervenes, and verse 17, the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Let her Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men, uh, gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So God, in intervening here, is saying a couple of things. Number one, uh, Abraham, I will preserve you. I will keep your life. I've made this promise to make you into the great nation. I will preserve you. I will protect you. He's also saying Sarah is important to this whole thing. You can't have a child without Sarah. And so He preserves Abraham and and all of his uh, his servants and and Sarah, of course, and they are sent on their way. So crisis resolved, not by Abraham's intervention, but by God's. Crisis number two comes up in the next chapter. It involves Lot and Abraham separating. So uh, verse 1, chapter 13, so Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and Lot with him, into the Negev. Now, Abram Abraham was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So basically, uh, Abraham and Lot are traveling together. Lot is Abraham's nephew, uh, and they they both have a lot of stuff. This is the classic case, we've all been there, of uh, just being so rich that you can't live with another rich person, right? And so uh, we uh, see that they separate, and they go different ways to make that happen. This was a problem because Abraham likely considered Lot to be his heir right? This is the, Lot was the closest thing that Abraham had to a son. This was his brother's son, right? And it's very likely that he had designated Lot to be his heir. But as they separated, as they went their different ways, uh, Lot gets himself into a, to a series of messes, uh, but they, they are separating, they've gone different paths. Lot is no longer a live option to be Abraham's heir. And so, Things get even murkier, right? Not even my nephew is with me anymore. Who will be my heir? Well, Abraham, as he does, comes up with a solution. Uh, And instead of Lot being his heir, he designates his servant Eliezer as his heir. So chapter 15, verse 2, But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus." So uh, Abram here uh, makes his servant, his heir, to try to make something happen. God responds to this by reiterating the depth of his covenant. Verse 4, chapter 15, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, Eliezer, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir, your very own son. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So God brings uh, Abraham along to see it's not going to be Lot, and it's definitely not going to be your servant's. But I am going to give you an heir through your very own son. And here he makes it explicit what his plans are for Abraham. To give him an heir from his own own lineage. And then God does something interesting. He makes this covenant with Abraham. Abraham so that Abraham knows the depth of his seriousness about it. And they go through this covenant ceremony, um, and, and we won't go through the, all the details of what they do, uh, but God emphasizes through all of this, this covenant ceremony, that no matter what happens, he will be faithful to his promises, and that Abraham could trust what God has said. So, God reiterates that Abraham will have a child, that his own son will be his heir. But this is a problem because crisis number three is that Sarah is barren. She can have no children. She has had no children, and she has passed the age of doing so. It seems impossible for them to be able to have a child, for there to be an heir. And so Sarah comes up with an idea, and Abraham listens. She thinks, well, God said your very own son will be your heir, but he didn't say my son will be your heir. And so she has uh, Abraham marry and have a child with her servants Hagar. And they do, they have a child, and this ultimately is a great perversion of what God meant. He did not mean for Abraham to go out and try to make this happen through his own efforts, to circumvent the wife that God had given to him. He meant that, God, that Abraham would have a son through Sarah, not through Hagar, And this child would be the child of promise. And this is exactly what God tells to Abraham in chapter 17. This is uh, his response to this. And God said to Abraham, this is verse 15, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael, the son of Hagar, might live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful, multiply him greatly. So God sees what Abraham has done and he comes and says, not what I meant. You are going to have a son through Sarah and you call his name Isaac and he is the one that will be blessed by me. And that leads us to the last crisis The last crisis I find to be perhaps the most interesting in some ways because it is exactly what happened in Egypt again. Uh, So this time uh, this is in the land of Gerar. uh, And there uh, Abraham goes to this area and he sees this king Abimelech and the same thing plays out. He tells him that uh, Sarah is his Uh, sister and not his wife, and so Abimelech tries to take her as his wife, and then again God intervenes and says, do not do that. In fact, he calls him a dead man uh, for trying to do it. So here we see Abraham, it looks like, unable to learn lessons. He is doing the same exact thing, God has already intervened and shown him that he will preserve him and that it made very explicit that he will have an heir through Sarah. And yet he does it again. And this, it appears, is the frustrating cycle of Abraham's life. He, 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 again and again and again, a crisis appears, and he tries to force things to happen through his own efforts and his own doing, and God has to continually come and intervene and reiterate and say, no, my promises to you are true, and I will ensure that they come to pass. I think Abraham's biggest problem with all of this is that his eyes drifted towards what can actually be achieved. I think Abraham might have been a pragmatist, maybe. Um, He looks at his life and he says, there's no way I'm having a kid. We'll figure something else out. Or he goes to Egypt and he says, there's no way I'm getting out of this. It's like, if Sarah's got to go, Sarah's got to go, right? Abraham continuously misses the target of what God has promised. His eyes continuously shift. This happens for us as well in Christ. We see all of the great and grand promises that we have been given in him. Eternal life, forgiveness from every one of our sins. And I think sometimes all of that sounds so grand and so amazing that it's easier to shift our eyes and to shift our focus on what we actually can have. Maybe I just want a good and stable job, I just want a happy family, I just want, I just want to be happy. And as our eyes shift and look away from the great upward call of God in Christ to these incredible promises that we have had our obedience slips as well, just as it did from Abraham. And we think this cross is rather heavy. It would be nice to be alleviated from that. So I will do, I guess, just the bare minimum that I need to get these things that I can actually have, to have my nice and comfortable life and to have my, uh, my, my, my dreams that I think can actually happen through my own efforts come true. We have not been called to faith in what we can do. We have not been called to faith in what the world can provide. And instead, we have been called to the incredible riches of, the, of glory in Christ. When our eyes are fixed on that, obedience follows. When our eyes of faith are fixed on what God has done in Christ, then we will see uh, the, the, the results of obedience of faith to follow. And eventually, that's pretty much what happened with Abraham. So he was strained in his faith by these events of life over and over and over again. But the greatest test to come, the greatest crisis would come when it came from God himself. 22 verse 1 After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So at this point, Abraham has spent, I'm going to say probably 35 years following God, and all of these crises had emerged, and again and again and again, God reiterates, I am doing a wondrous thing through you, and I'm going to do it through your son, Isaac. These beautiful promises of God are preserved again and again and again, and yet here, a great test appears. Is God, the one who had done all of this, Who had made all of this happen speaks to Abraham and says, Go sacrifice your son, please. This great test would be a moment to demonstrate faith. God's test demonstrates faith here in a couple of ways. First, God's test for Abraham is a culmination of what he has done. It's the culmination of what God has done. So I, this is the main point of what I've been uh, trying to make this whole time. This moment isn't an isolated event. This is the end point of a path that God had been directing Abraham down his whole life. This is where God was moving him, not to sacrificing his son, but ultimately to a place of complete faith and dependence on him. God's project wasn't necessarily uh, what would happen in Isaac as much, even greater, what he was doing through Abraham in causing him to depend absolutely on him. This was the culmination of a long work that God had been doing in Abraham. Abraham. His faith was being tested to prove what had already happened inside of him, what God had already been doing. If you were to take this out of it, if you were to take what happens here in Moriah, if you were to take the sacrifice of Isaac out of this, Abraham's life would simply be a series of random failures of God calling him and Abraham being called to have faith and him falling short of that again and again and again and again. But what happens here shows us that those events were not random failures, but it was God's work in building Abraham's faith. So For that reason, I'm going to stop here and say we must be patient with our own growth in faith. Sometimes, sometimes we may not even ourselves see or feel God working through the events of our lives. Sometimes our lives may seem like a random series of failures of faith and God. But what we see here is that he does not leave us, but the work that he began, he will complete and he will finish, just as he did in Abraham's life. This test was a culmination of what God had been doing for a long time. So God's test here is a culmination, but it's also a demonstration of two things. First, it's a demonstration of Abraham's faith. After God calls Abraham to do this, Abraham does something startling. He obeys. The most startling thing, though, is what Abraham said to Isaac. So let's start in verse 3. Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his young man, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both of them, so they went both of them together. So Abraham obeys God. He takes Isaac, takes some servants, and they they go, and they're carrying this wood, and then after the servants have left, Isaac asks a very reasonable question of his father. He says, We've got all of the stuff for a burnt offering, but we don't have anything to offer. What's up with that? And Abraham says that God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. There was at this point no lamb to be found. There was no, uh, no opportunity. Uh, there was no uh, burnt offering to take. At this point, it was only Abraham, Isaac, some wood, and a knife. But Abraham knew and was certain. He had learned what God does and how he preserves and how he works. And so he tells Isaac. God will provide the lamb. He knew one thing. He was walking up the mountain with Isaac and that he was going to walk back down the mountain with Isaac. He knew that because he had seen God's faithfulness time and time and time again. This test is meant to demonstrate what God had done, to reveal the faith that God had produced in Abraham. But more importantly, this test is a demonstration of God's own faithfulness. We have seen God be faithful to Abraham and his promises again and again and again. We see the greatest demonstration of God's faithfulness here, saying to us, the reader, that God's promises are so certain that even if he should speak against them, they will come to pass because God is faithful to what he has promised. And sure enough, as Abraham and Isaac reached the top there, and as Abraham came even to the very moment of sacrificing his son, God intervenes yet again as he has done over and over and over again. This is actually looks a lot like all of these crises that have come before. The only difference is now that Abraham obeyed. And God, again, still demonstrates his own faithfulness. The depth of God's faithfulness to Abraham is incredible. But it is nothing compared to the faithfulness that he has shown to us in Christ. In giving his very own son, he has shown to us that nothing, nothing will prevent him from uh, completing the salvation that he has began in us. Romans 8 tells us this beautifully. Romans 8, uh, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This act of faithfulness that God demonstrates to Abraham is not his greatest act of faithfulness. It is in the giving of his own son that this promise that began with Abraham, this blessing of a great nation, is completed. And where his promises are fulfilled, not just in an individual, but in his church, in all of us, and you, and you, and you, and me, and what God has done in Christ. He has demonstrated that his promises are true. And so, my call for us is to look to the God who is eternally and always faithful to his promises. To look to him who is sure and certain, who preserved Abraham through all of this, who preserved Isaac even through his own call to sacrifice him. God is faithful to his promises. And so my call for us this morning as we enter this new year, as we enter this new uh, set of opportunities for our life, it is to center our lives and our hearts, our faith and our devotion on the God who is always faithful to the great promises that we have in Christ. Let me pray for us.